Today you'll hear from the scientists who keep watchful eyes on the species close to extinction. You're listening to the Science Show on Cambridge 105. In this section called Scientists at Work, we talk to people who for some reason or another find themselves working, researching or thinking about science in Cambridge, England. The ICN, full name is International Union for Conservation of Nature, is an NGO. They have an office on Huntington Road, so they are local as well as global. And I asked Rebecca Miller, who works there, what do they do? IUCN is the world's oldest and largest environmental organization. Um, We work on everything from environmental law to species protection to protected areas to communication with the public. And what happens here in Cambridge? We have several different units here in the Cambridge office. We have a climate change unit, and they look at how species are vulnerable to climate change. So how, as climate change progresses, species are going to be affected by that. We have a freshwater biodiversity unit, and they are looking at freshwater ecosystems. Across the UK or across? Across the world, looking at how species in freshwater systems are threatened. And then, of course, how that affects human livelihoods and and things like that. We also have the IUCN Red List Unit. So this is where the IUCN Red List of Threatened Species is managed, and our GIS system is here, too. So all of our maps are produced here. Oh, can you show me a map? Yes. So here we're looking at a map of Equisferis, Przewalski's horse. The map itself zooms in to Mongolia, where the species is found, and you can see that it's actually only found in three tiny little populations that have been reintroduced. They're really isolated. Yeah, they are. Can we see more than one species at a time? Yeah. Um, when we compile red list assessments, we collect data on lots of different kinds of maps. This one, for example, um, shows where all of the species that are threatened, um, so they're vulnerable, endangered, or critically endangered, where they're found in the world. So here we're looking at mammals um, worldwide. This is a map of the world, so I can see there's a lot of endangered species in South America. Do you know why they're threatened there? We collect data as to what's causing it. That's because we want to know what we can do about it to try and and improve the situation for these species. Where do you get all this data from? Who gives it to you? We get the data from scientists all over the world. In the Red List Unit, there are only three of us at the moment that are sort of managing this data, but we work with a huge network of, of thousands of scientists. So you have to coordinate that data collection? You Me personally? personally yeah. um, I personally focus mostly on training. Don't yeah. the scientists know what, what, what the species are already? Yes, yes, <laughs> they do. Yes. In order to assess a species, you use what's called the IUCN Red List Categories and Criteria takes into consideration population information, where the species is found, um, if the species is declining, and uses that information to determine what the species extinction risk is. And because we're using information from so many different species all around the world, um, the ice and red list needs to be very rigorously maintained. So scientists know how to use these criteria. We train them in all of the details about about how that system works. And what kind of information are you asking? I mean, are you saying, you know, well, I saw a tortoise there today, you know? So usually these are people that have gone out into the field. They have gone out repeatedly um, different times of the year, over different years. And we will ask them things like, how many mature individuals are there? And they'll ha- they don't necessarily know exactly how many, but they, they can give us a broad range. And then what are those species used for? What kinds of threats are those species facing? Um, what sort of threats? Could you, you know, give some examples? Well, there are lots of examples of threats, unfortunately. <laughs> um, habitat loss is one of the biggest threats that, that species are, are facing today. So 
a scientist might be at a workshop and, and we could say, you know, are they undergoing a decline? And they may say yes, because 50% of their habitat has been lost over the past 15 years. Or it might be a species which is fished and they can look at catch statistics um, or even things as, as general as the presence of that species in a local market. Have you been out in the field yourself? I have been. I started out working in the field. Can you tell us some of your experiences? Uh, yes. I am originally from California, and so I did a lot of field work in California. Um, from there, I moved to Hawaii and was working with a forest bird conservation project. Is Hawaii a hot spot for birds then? Hawaii is amazing. Hawaii is absolutely fantastic. Because it's a small set of islands that have been isolated for so long, the species that made their way there have really become unique. The forest birds in particular, unfortunately, there's also a lot of habitat loss diseases. There's huge changes that are causing the forest birds to decline. The, the diseases that are introduced, do they affect humans as well or just the birds? Avian smallpox and avian malaria are really causing the species to decline. The avian smallpox and malaria don't affect humans. So is that carried by mosquitoes? It is. It is, just like in humans. So you have to count mosquitoes? Um, (laughs) Well, yes. So the project I was doing, fieldwork isn't always glamorous. Um, It can be really fun, and it is really fun. But we were looking, so we were mist netting, putting up these big nets and catching the birds. Why is it called mist netting? Uh, It's called mist netting because the nets are very, very fine. And especially if there's a a mist, then the birds can't see them. We do this at dawn, so as the birds wake up and and start their flight paths, they fly into the nets. And we're constantly monitoring the nets. So as soon as the bird gets caught in one, then we take the bird out. And that way we can see what species are present. So we found, for example, that at low elevations, there were much lower numbers of native Hawaiian forest birds than at high elevations. And part of the reason for that is because at high elevations, it's too cold for mosquitoes. So not as many birds are are suffering disease. And also because lower elevations, it's right by the beach. It's everyone wants to build their beautiful house. And so there's less habitat available. This data that is collected, is it available online? It is. We have the IUCN Red List website. It's www.iucnredlist.org. And all of the data from all of the species on the Red List, there's more than 60,000 species that have been assessed, is available online. And all of the maps can also be found online. That's the Red List. What about the other reports you've got? I see you've got one here on the diversity of life in African freshwaters. Right. So this was a project that our Freshwater Biodiversity Unit did over about five years. And and they looked at all of the freshwater crabs, freshwater mollusks, fish, dragonflies, and damselflies in Africa. That's that's a lot of species. Yes, it was a huge project. And they produced this huge report that gives, for example, here we're looking at a map, the number of fish species that are threatened due to different threats. So here we have agriculture. That was that splodge there then? Yeah, that's Lake Victoria. And as you can see, Lake Victoria comes up in all of these maps. It's really being bombarded by agriculture, sedimentation, invasive species. For agriculture, the lake is being drained to irrigate the fields. Um, It might also be pollution that's going into the lake. And you can also see that sedimentation, as the area is deforested and as they sort of churn up the, the ground, then that dirt comes into the lake. And species have been introduced, fish species have been introduced into the lake so that fishermen can fish them. But they are also very competitive, and they've done a really good job of um, destroying the native fish species in the lake. So Does that affect the local people then? It, it does. So on the one hand, these introduced fish provide a food source for the local people. 
On the other hand, those fish are causing such disruptions to the native species assemblage that the ecosystem itself, especially when you also factor in other threats like agriculture, um, it becomes weaker. So presumably something's happening about this, is it? How will we know if it's getting any better? Our aim is to reassess species at least every 10 years, um, especially if we do something about it. Because So if we implement those conservation actions, then we can see if they're being effective. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Hey, what do they actually mean when they say a species is endangered or critically endangered? Those are categories on the IUCN red list. Rebecca mentioned red list categories and criteria. The the categories are critically endangered, endangered, vulnerable, etc. And the criteria are how you decide which category a species belongs to. For example, a species will be critically endangered if um, its population has reduced by more than 80% over the last 10 years, or three generations if that's longer, like elephants or something, and the reasons for that decline are ongoing, or if the area where it is found is smaller than 10 kilometres and declining or becoming increasingly fragmented, or if there's less than 50 mature individuals. It's more like that, but you can see it's quite precisely defined. Okay. Now, Rebecca said that one of the threats to the amphibians in the lake was from the new fish species that were introduced to it, presumably because these fish were nice to eat. But why was that ever a problem? Well, the problem is that the new fish have disrupted the ecosystem to the point where, as Rebecca said, it's weak, it's unstable. This new fish has been so successful, it's now the dominant fish in the lake, so it has a lot of influence over the whole ecosystem. Suppose that fish eats too much of a plant that is needed by creatures that eat mosquitoes, then you could get a lot more malaria. Or if it eats too little of another type of plant, which then grows and clogs up the water surface, everything on the bottom dies for lack of light, it rots down, that uses up the oxygen, everything, including the fish, will die of asphyxiation. These are extreme scenarios, but they give you an idea of how things can change rapidly when the ecosystem is weak. And those changes could be bad for people as well as the other lake species. Um, Some people would say that if we do anything at all, we mess up the system. So the very word conservation seems to mean keeping things the same. So are we saying that anything you do to change things is bad? No, not exactly. I mean, things change. That's natural. But, you know, other people will have different opinions. But as I see it, it's only sensible to monitor the effects we are having to try to make sure that we aren't disrupting systems to the point where they are weak and can collapse. That's why the IUCN monitoring role is so important. Even single species can be important. For example, if you remove the top predators from a grassland ecosystem, it will get overrun with grazers and it will probably turn into a dust bowl because the only population control on the animals is having enough to eat. Okay, so all this information, there must be some of it online and we can have a look at it ourselves, can we? Absolutely. You can search the whole Red List database of species online using various criteria and you can see the distribution maps for each species. There are maps showing sightings, they call them observations, and you can contribute to those yourself. The, the IUCN uses data from various sources, including you can contribute via the inaturalist.org website. It's a sort of citizen science project. You as an individual can upload photos and a geographic reference and a description of what you've seen. Anyone can take part. It's inaturalist.org. That's pretty much all for today's show. Scientists at Work is made by the Science Show team on Community Radio Cambridge 105. You can also find past episodes on the website www.cambridge105.fm You can also subscribe to future podcasts with the iTunes store. You can get in touch with us on the email science at cambridge105.fm or on Twitter at 105science. 
Till next time, it's bye from the Science Show team of Roger Frost and Nicola Terry. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. <laughs>